And so how did your photography or photographic career start? I was born in 1970 and I was lucky enough that my parents got the Sunday Times. And the Sunday Times through the 1970s was fan a fantastic photographic education. Every Sunday it would be the best photographers going would be there and you would see their work and you would absorb it. Um, I can I, um, I went to a Don McCullen exhibition when I kind of got got back into photography probably sort of 18 or 19 and all the images were so familiar because they'd kind of been seared into my head from seeing them in the Sunday Times and I went back to look and these were ones that were published about sort of 1974 75 and I'd been four or five years old but these images were really familiar to me so um, so there's obviously they had Don McCullen there they also had a wonderful photographer who never gets her dues called Sally Soames, who was a portrait photographer. Um, and she was absolutely excellent as well. And I think there was also a strike on uh, the Sunday Times and they stopped making it for a while. And I can remember that they luckily bought the Observer then for this period of time. So I got some um, Jane Bone stuff. And it was kind of a... And obviously then you had the sort of Martin Parr coming in, Paul Rees, the, the colour stuff would come in. And it, it felt like you were seeing this in real time rather than studying it. I mean, this obviously in hindsight, look, looking back at it. But, you know, I, I, I kind of think that was the best photographic education you could have, really. And... Um, in York, we had the Impressions Gallery, which means, um, I'm really bad at names, so I'm, um, the guy who did the Viking space experiment, whose um, colour stuff all shot round Leeds, he was a lorry driver, I remember, in, in, in a bit, Peter, Mitchell, um, Peter Mitchell's work, that was shown there, and I can, I can remember seeing it quite young and thinking, God, this, this is good. Um, I, I can remember the colour stuff. I was more interested in it than wanted to shoot like it. Um, I, I can remember not so much being unsure about it, but I didn't kind of aspire to that colour view point. It took me a while to get, get into colour photography, I think. But, you know, seeing Peter Mitchell's work and things like that, and um, Martin Parr's early stuff, you were kind of, you know... That's pretty much where you want to be. And then from that, you kind of get a roadmap from from discovering those those photographers and you have interviews with them and they will say, oh, I, I do this because I like Stephen Shaw. And then you, you'll go and you'll look at Stephen Shaw's work. And it was it, it was really... I, I kind of... My photography would kind of ran at parallel with an interest in music. So it was the sort of same thing. You'd buy The Enemy and you'd read about a musician you'd like. And he'd say, oh, yeah, I was really influenced by Biggie Pop, the Stooges, or something like that. So you'd go out the next day, you'd try and track down these sort of American uh, sort of garage rock bands and things. And it was similar with photography. It was because the... Inter I, I, I think anybody young listening to this, and the internet wasn't there. It was... You had to make a real... Find somebody like Stephen Shaw. It was an absolute nightmare in Yorkshire. It was kind of, you know... 
you, you, I mean, uh, it's a good place to live because, because of there was there was a good contemporary photography scene. But but stuff like that was difficult to find. William Eggleston, you know, it's hard. It, you know, it was like tracking down the first Suicide album, which was really hard to find as well. And you, these things, you kind of had to make a lot more effort for it. And and it was hellishly expensive to buy this stuff. You know, because obviously nobody really had sort of you know money and things like that at this point. So it was um, you had to save for this stuff. So it, you had to buy the right one. You had to buy the right book. Otherwise, you'd you'd, you'd wasted your sort of two months' money and things like that. So uh, or you'd wasted your film money and things. And that was that that was the worst part. Yeah, it's, it's it's interesting you should say that because um, uh, I, I think one of the I was given a gift actually when I was sixteen. Um, it was a, a book of life, the magazine, and that was just some of the stuff in there was just absolutely stunning, and um, and it made you want to it made you want to find out more, more uh, you know, spend time in libraries looking at books and things. Uh, a tragic thing in my case is that I never took up photography until much later in life, uh, uh, professionally that is. So um, when do, when did you actually start doing uh, work professionally, uh, Brian? Um, it was pretty much after college, um, really. Um, I've kind of, it's pretty much a lot, a lot of the time I've had to support myself, you know, um, through doing additional jobs as well. And that, that you know, that's a, because a lot of my stuff doesn't make, or at that point didn't make enough money to live off, particularly in London. But I kind of worked at, I ended up working for Corbis, God, let me think. I was probably about 30 when I started working for Corbis and I, I worked there, um, I did a lot of their post-production and things. Um, but all the time I was shooting, 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 um, starting to get into magazines and things. Do you remember your first gig? Um, oh God, uh, the first, first thing I can remember doing on any sort of professional basis, I must have been about 15 was there was a musician called Gary Marks that was in a band called the Sisters of Mercy and um, it was just, this is Leeds local bands and I kind of really cheekily found out they're managing their management company I just phoned them up and just said can I come and photograph your band I'm really good and, <laughs> and they, they kind of went yeah well I'd just turn up at this point around the back and kind of knock on the door ask ask for Nick it was kind of Oh, okay. This is obviously how you do it, and you know, I, it's kind of just always, you know, be cheeky. And, and these are, you won't get that many. You have to make your own opportunities, I think. Um, and I, I kind of realised sort of early on. I've, I've worked for music magazines on and off for years and years and years. And you were a roadie as well. Yes, that was kind of that was when I was at university. It's um. You could kind of because you know the student grants were just being phased out at the time. It was it sort of I paid my way through university basically by working on the sort of local road crews. Um, that's kind of where I got my love for speakers from. I would work with this. Um, there was a um, it, w it would always be local PA companies, and these this was from the West Midlands, and most of these were from Birmingham, where there was obviously a great big reggae scene and bass speakers were you know 
there was a big, everybody had to have the best one. So, so quite often these PAs that you turn up would be handmade and they'd be some bad and they were all hired out. So you'd put them up and you'd, and you'd put them up and you'd just think, oh, that looks beautiful. <laughs> that's just, that's just fantastic looking there. And, um, and, um, there was the, the guy that used to own the PAs was, was a bloke who was, who was very unlikely called, his name was Shirt and, yeah, that was all his name was Shirt. So, he's, and and the trouble is, Shirt had such a thick Brummy accent. I literally had no idea what he was ever saying to me. But he would sit there and talk and talk about his speakers until the cows came home. But I had no idea what he, <laughs> what he was actually saying. So I used to just sort of smile and nod and and things. But I, he kind of got to learn how beautiful these things were and kind of how imposing they were and. That just kind of obviously stuck with me. I think this happens quite a lot. That you 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 end up you end up with this scrapbook in your head of things that you've seen, and they pop back and you refer to them. And I mean, I I did a did a picture of um, um, artist called uh, an author called Amy Liptrot, who's who wrote a fantastic book called the Out the Outrun, which kind of yeah got every every award going um which brilliant um i, I took a photograph of her and then i realized i'd kind of referred to the girl with a pearl, pearl earring but i re referred to it how i remembered it which was when you kind of look at what the original it, it's not a copy because you you refer to the thing that's in your head so that's always always a big piece of advice i give out to people is go to if you're interested in portraiture or landscape just don't look at photographs. Go and look at every painting, every representation you can find of this, because this is all really good reference material. Yeah, I'm I, I, sort of uh, jumping in on you there, but uh, um, uh, one of the greatest influences, I hated school. It was one of the, uh, it was a hor horrendous experience. I, I disliked it intensely. But, um, and I, always, I was always late to school. I had to walk to school. And um, the art master, whose name was Mr. Snelling, was also very late uh, going to school. But we kind of uh, got on very well. And he would lend me books about Rembrandt and Caravaggio and all these things. And they do, they do uh, kind of sink into your head. And you kind of remember these things. And, and looking at paintings is uh, one of... Uh, one of the joys really and uh, uh, usable uh, uh, in a photographic sense as well and uh, um, you know um, the, the portrait you have of Amy is uh, is uh, an absolute delight and uh, I'm friends with Amy on on Twitter and things and uh, we talked a lot and when she was um, writing a book we I used to communicate quite a lot with her when she was uh, up uh, up north and um, it was uh, very interesting, and I really wanted a photographer myself, but you got there first, man. <laughs> yeah, it's it's it. The, the, there was actually something really. It was kind of depressing. I think some somebody get get kind of lots of students writing to you and things, which is nice. Um, but I can remember one 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 guy wrote to me and said, "Oh, uh, I'm in London. Is 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 there anything you recommend to go in to see?" and there was the Carav there was a Caravaggio show was on the National Portrait Gallery, and I was going to say, go to see that because it's fantastic, you know, and it's and he was like, no, I'm only interested in photographs. 
And I was like, oh no, that, 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 that's so sad. Don't go and see a third-rate photography show when you can go and see these, these paintings. Because they, you, I know you're interested in photography, but these will give you so much more of a grounding. They will give you so much more information. They will give you, they will make your heart sing. They will make your heart leap. They will, they will stretch you in ways that photographs can't. You know, go look at more art. Everybody go look at more art. I'm really fascinated about how you approach uh, your portraiture and um, uh, and your client. I, um, I, I don't know if I've said this before. I probably have, Brian. So, um, uh, I, But anyway, I'm going to say it again. But I kind of think that um, portraiture is they're, they're almost self-portraits in a, in, in a weird sort of way. I, I, I don't know if that makes any sense to you or whether I'm talking talking absolute nonsense but how do you approach uh, your um, portraiture work what's what what well I wouldn't say tricks that's being a bit disparaging but uh, what style and what how do you go about working with a person in order to get what you want from them I never really won for equipment that's well, that's definitely one thing um, I did. I did as um, I'll go through a few things that I've done and way that I approach them because I, th I think it's all kind of quite different. Um, I did a thing where I photographed a hundred war veterans that were all shot on Armistice Day over a period of ten years. So there was kind of lots of things like time was important with that, and when they were taken and the date, obviously Armistice Day, what was going on in their heads would be very different from what was going on in their heads other days so that was important to put that that there was kind of that was happening and the fact that this was the day that they were there to remember their experiences but they were they, they were they were probably reliving what they had seen but they were also with their comrades or their remaining comrades so there was this kind of dichotomy of happy and sad going on which is interesting and these kind of these kind of things that are complicated interest me far more than things that are simple but only in the kind of what's going on internally with them. I, li I like a complex internal photograph, which is photographed very simply. Um, I, do I don't like lots of equipment. I, I virtually everything I shoot is shot with one light source and maybe a reflector because I only own one light and I only own one reflector. Um, and I think more than one light is advertising photography and I'm not interested in advertising photography. So I kind of like, and you can do a lot with one light and you can do a lot with a reflector as well. And you can mix that with daylight. I'm not that massively into the technical aspect of it, but you kind of have to know how light works. And again, look at paintings. You know, most of that, most, you know, there's very few light sources in paintings. That's one thing, and le learn that, and get that into your, you know into your head for doing it. Um, so again, very simple, and I kind of have an idea what's going on. Sometimes I can't tell the person particularly about it because I need to let them fall into it, so it becomes natural. If you tell somebody, look a bit sad. You know, that, that's rubbish, isn't it? You know, you kind of have to direct the conversation slightly 
into into those kind of areas you're almost trying to get but it's very much a collaboration you kind of have to it's good when your subject kind of gets what you're doing and things that that can that can um but it, but it, but again the sort of thing things pull out from your head and you end up doing them it's kind of like the, the picture of um i did photograph of wilco johnson which is diptych and it's one of its what the the one panel it, it's the story was he'd been given the di diagnosis of terminal cancer and he'd kind of put out a statement where he was incredibly brave facing this um and music magazine called uncut sent me down to photograph him and i sort of had this idea you know, shoot him for that but it's the, these kind of jobs i would always retain the copyright because i would photograph him for the magazine but i would also photograph him for myself so what went in the, the magazine would be my picture but my picture would be the one that i would have and it's it's quite difficult to now to to, to get magazines to do that um or kind of even understand <laughs> what, what where you're coming from saying i want that i know you're i know what you want for the magazine and i'll give you that but i'm going to do this as well kind of thing and sometimes it's very difficult because you don't have that much time so maybe you have to combine the two coming back to your uh, you know um uh, the photographs of the veterans uh, uh what's striking to me about them is that the uh, is the pathos and the uh and the eyes and the um genuine of the people you photographed uh, um, and I think that's the the power of that series for me I mean I've not seen them I've not seen uh, an exhibition of them but looking at them on the web um, and they kind of remind me of uh, well they remind me of my father actually uh, he was um, you know um, uh, a war veteran and um, uh, it's that when they remember, when they when they are thinking in that way, uh, it's something that is indescribable, really. Um, and uh, uh, but you, how much time did you spend with them, uh, uh, Brian? Three frames, tops. You know, it's very very quick. Yeah, be, for for some because you don't want to take up anybody's time. They they're not there to be photographed. That's the thing. You know, they they're there to remember their their comrades and spend time with their comrades so you really don't want to be obtrusive at all um but most fast everybody agreed to be photographed who's there you know but very few people didn't want to i mean obviously everybody's asking because i don't believe in photographing people but certainly portraits you know it's it's a collaboration you you know the person kind of has to want to be photographed but um Again, very very simple. Um, I I would explain why I was doing it, and I would take three frames tops from it. Um, and it's it sort of it started off this idea. There was um, God, when I was thinking about it, there was a thing called um, it's a film director called Lars von Trier who's since been. I think thrown out to the academy and everything, but um, he he started this idea of dogma films, which was um, films that were made to certain rules. You would only use this camera and one lens, and I liked that idea of restricting yourself. 
so um, you know the, the the equipment thing didn't really come into it um, it was one camera one lens you know for the whole lot and the, the you know it was that 80 mil length shot kind of shot shot throughout that I think that the thing the thing that was the m most difficult about it was the fact that I didn't give any names or, or backstories to it because it, I kind of wanted that that feeling that when you see a huge war memorial and you just see names 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 and I kind of wanted to do that with faces and I, I and I didn't want anybody to be somehow graded in terms of bravery and things you know I wanted the guy that flew the Spitfires to, to be on an absolute equal footing to the this the squadron which was mainly women that used to deliver the planes to the air you know and I people's stories are, were, were there and they were out there and I kind of I thought I just want to do this to be very simple the faces and these people were people who were at Armistice Day and who had served, and that was pretty much what it what it was. You refer, uh, I think, uh, um, when you first started the project, you did some uh, World War One veterans and then World War Two veterans. Were you tempted at all to uh, do veterans from um, sort of present day conflicts at all, or is that something that you've got, you've got in mind for future reference? Um, well, there there were people from. Um, I think there were certainly people from the Korean War, certainly people from the Falklands in there. Um, it, it, it was meant to be, it was kind of meant to be completely democratic. That was, that was the idea that there was kind of, because I think people, bravery occurs when people are put into a certain situation. And I kind of, I didn't, and some people just weren't put into into that situation. And you know, if it, if you worked round the clock to make sure the Spitfires got out and things like that, that you know, I want I wanted all this to be equal. So so, you know, I don't I didn't want people to linger on the one person that had done X, Y, and Z um, over over the top of somebody else. You know, um, just because the. There, there seemed to be quite a lot of those stories going around where people sort of describe. I, I kind of wanted it to be very photographic. You're talking one of the videos that I uh, that I watched that uh, it was uh, I, you became ill after one. For goodness sake, it was uh, you would uh, you relate a story about it raining and the following day you were you got pneumonia. I mean, uh, <laughs> but uh, did you? I mean, a long-term project that like that. Um, uh, because people change uh, and styles change, and um, how did you keep that sort of continuity uh, of uh, photographic work going through? Did you have it that locked into your head from the very start? It was pretty much locked in from the first. First, you know, once once I kind of I just happened to be in London on Armistice Day with uh, a Nikon camera and an eighty mm lens. Um, and it kind of started from there, and then from that, I thought, okay, this is a project for it. Um, the, the, and I thought, okay, it's going to be a hundred pictures. It's going to be ten years. And once I'd got that framework in, it's okay. Um, but you know, when you're on year eight and it's chucking it down with rain, 
that's it. You, you've got to you've got to get it done. Otherwise, you know, it's ten. You know, you, you you've messed up your your ten year project and things. So you kind of have to have to see it see it through. So how did you cope with that rainy day? Oh, I just got wet. You know, <laughs> that was it. It's kind of it was. I I I I'm from Wales and I was brought up in Yorkshire. I'm kind of used. I'm kind of used. To, used to the it raining it was, it's but the, the more the more important thing is it's it's you know you keep the cameras working that's um i had um i i one of the first things that i shot which i thought actually i'm on to something here was was may day in ooh, 2000 or 2001 2001 i think it was where everybody got kettled in at um uh, kettling is a term where the police basically surround a protest and don't let anybody out and they, they, we, they, it was kind of a new technique then and because i didn't have a press card i was just going down and i was interested what what happens at these sort of things and sort of pretty much early on i realized uh i'm not interested in this in from a kind of news point of view i'm interested in it as a spectacle as 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 an event or you know as a, it was it was like street theater pretty much because you'd be sat there you'd see the police change rapidly into their riot gear and you'd kind of have this sort of they were all black like stormtroopers but you'd have this sort of little window of humanity that they were looking out through at you and i thought that's quite interesting so i kind of started shooting the police is photographing the police um around it because because I, I photographed quite a lot of demos and I was never massively interested in what anybody was demonstrating about particularly it's kind of, it was the kind of slight oddness of the event occurring in the streets and that was fascinating to me did you find yourself uh, was the your your camera your protection from um, uh, isolated you from the actual events itself yeah, sometimes it does. Um, it kind of gives you a reason to be there, and it gives you a reason to look at things, which is, and that's photography in general, and that's, and that's kind of one of the joys of it because I'm a really shy person, and it kind of gives me an excuse to look at stuff. Whereas if I've got a camera, because I can go and take a photograph of it, and it, it kind of allows me to do that, or allows myself to do that. Um, but sometimes you, you kind of get a weird sixth sense at these kind of things when you know you're going to be all right. Sometimes you know, yeah, I'm going to be fine today. It's going to be great. I'm going to go right at the front and people can throw bricks at me. None of them will hit me. And you're kind of all right. And then some, then some days you go, ooh, I'm not feeling this today. I'm, go, I'm going to hang back a bit. Um, and, and occasionally, that, that I'd, I'd had an operation, so I had stitches in once, uh, one thing, and I can't remember what it was. But because I'd kind of been told that you can't, I had this, I, I couldn't be in a crush, basically. So I kind of followed this event, like about two minutes behind everybody else, when everybody goes, so I got this really weird set of pictures, which were really fascinating, because they were what happens just when this sort of riot thing, uh, you know, I've got people using a cash machine when the entire bank has been smashed up around it and thing, and and it's it's kind of like the sort of aftermath. And I think the protesters brought sort of um, paintballing guns, I think, so they all paintballed the police and then ran off. 
And, and, and I kind of got there when the police were just like, what, what, what just happened? <laughs> Covered in paint. And it was, it was, that, was, that was kind of quite an interesting thing to do about it. Again, I, 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 I couldn't, I can't remember what anybody was protesting about. There's one photograph you have as well, which uh, it's uh, again with the police with their visors down, but they're female police officers, which I find uh, that's kind of, that kind of softens things in a strange way. It's interesting just because you only see that you basically you only tend to see people's eyes once once the right gears on and that was the thing that was fascinating and you could get i think there's there's a shot with this three i've got one of three policemen and they all look like absolutely different characters in it even though all you have that you know that stormtrooper riot uniform and all you get to see is this little little space around their eyes where the balaclava's not covered, and that was that was the thing that kind of went. Actually, th th this is what I'm interested in: this little visor of humanity that I can see people. I'm, 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 this is what I'm going to photograph. There's another photo, lovely photograph of a guy sitting on the floor uh, with a riot police in front of him and the word "left" on it, and he he, he likes looks really indifferent to what's going on. As if he's being caught in a maelstrom that he doesn't quite understand, you know. And the guy flicking a V at you as well. I mean, how do you, how do you react to sort of uh, aggressive nature of the protesters? Because protesters can be quite aggressive towards photographers. I've found out to my, myself, you know, they can be quite uh, intimidating sometimes. Some days, you know, you feel you, nothing's going to happen to you. And some days you think, I'm going to hang back. So I, I, I've never really particularly let... That sort of, I, I, I just try and be nice to everybody I meet. I'm nice to the police. I'm nice, to, uh, I'm nice, nice to the um, protesters. And you know, I mean, I, I, I'm kind of there. You know, don't mind me. I'm just invisible. You know, get, you know, get, get on with, what, get on with whatever you're doing today. You know. Um, I think, think that's the thing. I, I mean, I think, I think being nice is so underrated. That's the thing, you know, you could, um, especially doing portrait things, you, you, I find really odd. Some photographers are really odd and kind of get quite shirty with, with their subjects, where it's, I mean, I mean sometimes you, you, you have musicians that do need a bit of discipline and, you know, stand there, shut up. <laughs> um, but um, have, you had any, have you had any difficult gigs with musicians? Oh, yeah, load, load, load. Lots of people don't want their photo taken. Why do you think that is so? It's generally because they're quite shy. I think and that that's one of the things that people sort of kind of don't. There's there's um there's band Jesus Mary Chain who I did a portrait of, which is in the National Portrait Gallery in Scotland at the moment, and they used to have a terrible reputation for you know being violent and having these really violent gigs and. Um, I think it mainly became because they were quite shy. They they would they would um, have a drink before going on stage, um, and again you know. But but band, bands like that they're so they're seeped in this whole imagery of rock and roll. They know it. You know they they they've they grew up on the enemy. You know they knew all those great um, the Anton Corbins. They know what good imagery looks like, and they'll give it to you. That's the thing because they know it. They they know it as much as you do. They know what a good photograph is, and quite often, you, and they don't have anything to prove. You know, they're great. They 
and you know it's it's when people kind of haven't made that jump yet you sometimes you sometimes get because they automatically think oh I should be treated in this way and you kind of oh, it's kind of that there isn't the money that money left in the music business to treat you in that way unfortunately anymore um because again like sort of publishing you know the the money there is just is next to nothing and you know um but but I, I i people sometimes lose the the idea that you're there your job is to make them look good and if you haven't made them look good you don't look good either so you know that and, and that's kind of a fundamental thing that a lot of people that's kind of lose sight of that you know they think in some way the photographer's going to stitch them up and you're like if you look crap, I look crap. You know that's that's a thing. Um, but then you get you you occasionally with with music things you get really odd, odd things. I had uh, somebody sent a um, thing, in, in, in quite often from you have sort of PRs, and they'll say, oh yeah, can you do the photograph? We got we've got somebody here for your photograph, and you go, okay, you've got any ideas for it? And they say, oh yes, we're going to shoot like this, and they'll send you lots of pictures of Keith Richards from. 1973, or the, the, the 1975 Stones tour when he was he was looking fantastic and thin, and you know he, he was that photograph of him signed like uh, with the um, Drug Free America sign, and he's obviously off his head leaning against all this, but this brilliant Rolling Stone, I think it's Andy Leibovitz pictures, and you go like that, and they go, oh yeah, you wanted to look like that, and you go, okay, who am I pho photographing? And and they'll send you a picture of a bloke who looks like a potato, and you and and you're kind of. Uh, there's only so far, you know, by sending this, sending these pictures, you're going to be disappointed. He's going to be disappointed on things like that. But you kind of have to be realistic with things here. Now, there's no reason you can't make this a great picture. I mean, look at Frank Black from the Pixies, who's kind of a big bloke, but rock and roll. That's the thing. He looks fantastic. And, and, and it's kind of just expecting somebody then to instantly become Keith Richards. It's kind of... You, you you get that very rarely, to be fair, but it's it, it, it that's the difficulty that sometimes you get. Yeah. Do you find PR companies are um, uh, that they their expectations of what you can actually do are, um, are sometimes um, uh, overinflated? It's the same as anything. It's good. You know, you get absolutely fantastic ones and. In the majority, most of them are great. I know lots of lots of lovely PR people who kind of get you know who kind of get it, but they they also and it, but it is the people that have kind of grown up reading the enemy that have kind of done their lifetime of homework. You know, you know that that's that's a thing that's really important. It's kind of is is to be this suck all this stuff in. You know. Um, and retain it because it will always come out. I was, I was talking earlier about doing the Wilco one, and there was a picture that just popped into my head to do it where I wanted to do it, and it was the death mask of William Blake, which is the sculpture of it, um, the, the, the you know the actual sort of death mask of him, and because he was ill, I, I kind of thought this this could maybe work with William Blake and Wilco Johnson. But I felt there was a connection there. And it was kind of like, 
I didn't tell him I wanted it, but I saw at one point his face relaxed and he closed his eyes and bang. Yeah, you kind of, I kind of had that picture in my. And then I, I did a colour version of it and it sort of, sort of sat around. And then I realised I'd, I'd kind of lit it. It was all lit in the same way as the Bacon, Francis Bacon's painting of the death mask of William Blake. And I didn't have any of this to refer to because I, I think that's the really bad idea is when you refer to stuff and try and copy it. Like, if you've got it in your head, you kind of make these referrals to it and you don't get it quite right. But because you're not copying it, you're, it's like you're trying to remember something. You're kind of grasping at these memories and putting those in. And, and you realise, oh, that, that's where that came from then. And it was kind of, because I wasn't even sure that that, I remember the bacon painter, but I only realised um, there's a show on at the moment, or just been on, that it was in there. And I only realised that it was a study of the death mask of William Blake. Whereas I just thought it was, I, I kind of thought it was something from the Pope series or something like that. But, um, but you know, the, you know I, I find all this stuff really important to, to, to sort of suck in. And, and, and you've got this scrapbook in your head of, Things you can refer to, and you can, you can put these little tiny bits in that people maybe get or not get, or it'll. I think the first photographs I saw, well, I guess when I joined Twitter, I suppose, were your Billy Childish series, which just um, um, uh, mind blowing series. Uh, what sort of guy was he? Oh, he's lovely. He's really, really nice. That's um. Um, I think he was kind of. It was, let me think what happened. There was my friend Phil, who actually plays in lots of bands, um, drove me down there because I think he wanted to meet him as well. And, he, and he's a filmmaker, he shoots on Super 8, so he, he made a bit of a film of it, or which I think is on YouTube. Um, and I'd been, it, it wasn't really a commission, was it? It was something for an American magazine where they said, can you go and photograph somebody who you f find inspiring? And I thought, I was kind of, I've been talking about Billy Childish, I just kind of liked the way that he just went out and did things. Kind of, he did, didn't feel, I, he didn't feel like he'd asked permission to do these, or, you, you know, he, he, he kind of hadn't been to art, all the art schools, and he hadn't studied English. But he was a but he you know he was a poet and he you know he's a published poet and he's a really good poet and he's an artist and he's a really good artist and there were these things that he just went and did and I found that incredibly inspiring. Um, and we went in Phil's old Renault Five um, down to Chatham where where Billy lived and we were kind of. He knew Phil through playing in garage bands and things, so him and Phil got on okay. And I used to have a shonky old Land Rover, and Billy used to have an old Land Rover. So we bonded over Land Rovers basically, and and, and Land Rover gearboxes without synchro mesh and stuff like that. Um, and no, he's a tr you know tremendously again. Billy knows imagery. He knows how to be photographed and we had lots of ideas. I noticed he had this fantastic hat collection, best hat collection in Chatham. 
he had so so we kind of did lots of pictures of him wearing hats um and i think that's what that's what that's kind of one of the things what billy childish is really funny and i i think he's one of those people i like that people that that kind of do really serious art but there's quite a lot of humor behind it which a lot of people don't see that that was a kind of i i kind of the band of my youth growing up in Leeds was this band called the Sisters of Mercy who were like everybody thinks oh yeah goths miserable miserable they were hilarious they were just they were they were utterly ridiculous they would everybody would think they were miserable and they would go out in their concerts and they would play ABBA songs and like and 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 kind of nobody really got the joke which I kind of like and and in some ways I think Billy Childish had that level of humour underneath things, which I think is important. Uh, and humour is really difficult to do in work. It's, it's kind of, um, it's. I don't. I can't think of very many people that have added humour into art and photography particularly well. I mean, there there probably are lots and lots of examples I can't think of, or uh, because I. I I'm sure it's humor so, so sub- subjective. I think I think you know street photography always has it, but um, um, it, it's really uh, interesting that you've gone back to your um, uh, to the sound systems um, and that you've been doing screen prints and things of them. What was the what was the thinking behind that? Um, there's a couple of reasons. Um, there's a couple of guys called Tartaruga, who is Josh from the FT magazine, and Max, who's a screen printer, approached me about doing something with it. And I love to collab- I collaborate with lots of people. I love doing things like this. And they were saying, well, we don't want to do, you know, we, we do screen prints. And I'd always loved the Andy Warhol disaster series. I, I kind, of, kind of, you always have these sort of artists that you like when you're quite young, about sort of 15 or something that, you know, they're the kind of gateway drugs into art. And Warhol was always one of those that I, I really liked. And even now, the Disaster series I absolutely love. These are ones where he did very early on in his career. They're pictures of automobile accidents and sort of shooting. Then they were all screen printed. They were quite heavy. And I love that idea of those. And I sort of telling Max about that and Max kind of got that idea and, and the fact that loads of posters for reggae stuff was always screen printed at the time of those so it, it kind of seemed to fit and it seemed to take the picture somewhere else which was which wasn't you know it was good fun to do that was the thing it's um um it's something different I'm never particularly afraid of doing anything different and it is, and because it was an odd thing, because we would make a box of screen prints. We've got a box of screen prints now that are for sale, and you know it's a hundred pounds for this screen printed box, and there's six screen prints in it, and they're all held in place with the recording, the foam you get in recording studio. So it's, everything's kind of been thought about, and it's it's you know it's it's quite fun, um, but. It's 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 an old thing because 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 something like that hasn't really existed before. It, it was really difficult to find a price point for it because you know to buy an actual photographic print from me of the sound systems is is very expensive now. 
um, because they've been collected. Um, but the screen prints, I always felt, was a nice way for people who 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 to 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 get into the idea of being able to buy something. That's a thing, and some and something that's something that's handmade and something and and again something that's quite different. Um, so you know, in terms of value for money, they're ridiculously good value for money. You know, the photographic prints kind of fall into the pricing of photography now which is is very difficult to get out of you are you are you know you are you kind of have to the market sets your prices to a certain certain degree and if you go and this is a way of kicking against that but without kicking against it if you know it's a it's it's kind of like a feeder diffusion or something like that line underneath that 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 idea because down pricing your work doesn't do you any favors and and kind of you know it's that's almost sort of a tied up thing you find most photographers find that um uh, to, to jump ahead and to talk a, a little about your landscapes and the brighter later series uh, um is a an interesting concept and uh, sort of right and left eye um work um that's that that actually go, goes back to Wales actually I um, I was in my steg for a funeral and oh, somebody came up to was, I don't think it was an auntie but it might have been um came up and said I'm really glad you've stopped doing that thing with your eyes and I was kind of like what was that and you go you used to look at something with one eye like uh, with your hand over it then look at it from the other and do that and you were I was kind of I used to do that. I can remember that now. And then I thought, oh, that's interesting because it's kind of like um, deconstructing your binocular vision. So I thought this might be interesting to make some photos like that. So it took a little while to work out how to do it and how to do it in a way that was feasible. Um, and we, we lots of experimentation found found the way that, and it kind of seemed to fit quite nicely for landscapes and I, I use it quite a lot um, and, I, and I find myself looking at landscapes using one eye and, and, and using the other um, well, why, why did you choose seascapes? I kind of had this idea that lots of people did studies of Britain looking in and kind of and I kind of wanted this idea of Britain looking out and being this kind of island race that went out and explored and saw endless possibilities and the endless possibilities of travel and so I like that idea I kind of thought they'd all look the same which kind of amused me I, I, I like this idea of Britain this portrait of Britain where everything looked exactly the same I thought that's quite a funny idea to do that um, did that that didn't happen at all because it all looked completely different. In fact, I showed I could show I showed these to somebody and they, despite the fact there was absolutely it was just being a sea. And light, they identified where the picture was taken from the light. Within, basically four miles, which was kind of, oh. That's kind of amazing because. Obviously, that light has had so much effect on you, and I'm really pleased because I've managed to catch it. 
to the fact that you can remember what it looked like 20 years ago when you were there as a kid um so so that was it was kind of interesting and i like i like projects that have got a stop and a start which which uh stopping projects i found is difficult but now since brexit i've kind of changed my mind you see i just see now seeing those pictures i just see borders now and i it's it's, it's been interesting how rather than an outward looking nation it feels it feels like that that was something that from a long time ago <laughs> um so it's um I kind of haven't got my feelings completely straight in my head about it, but it's 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 definitely changed. I think it's it's a Japanese photographer, and I forget his name, but he talks about seascapes as being the only um, vista that you look at that hasn't changed in millennia, uh, and th that I, f I find fascinating in itself. And um, I've worked a bit with um, with uh, pinhole stuff, looking out overseas, you know, and. Um, but uh, um, and you're quite right. You can you can look at a vista and know exactly where it is. It's very uh, because it, it appears bland, but it's not. It speaks it speaks all the time. You know. Um, <clears throat> did you pick days? Um, I mean, did you? I mean, or you you visited obviously a lot of places. The only way I could afford to do it was to book the train months in advance. You know, if you if you were going to uh, Penzance. I went to Penzance for, I think it was about an hour and a half um, to, to, to do it. And I kind of, to me, to me it didn't matter. I would, I would just go there and I would photograph what was there. And that, and, and that was kind of, uh, I wasn't looking for anything beautiful or incredible scenes of light or anything like that. It was what was there. That, that was kind of the important part of it. You know, it, it, it's, it just had to be honest and truthful it was kind of I wasn't going to wait until the sort of you had storm light or anything like that it was it was um, what you see is what you got why, why did you pick Conway in Wales because um, I, I had this A to Z map of um, um, coastal counties and it, and it was on there and I, and I managed to do all of North Wales I think in a day or two days which was kind of quite you know um, what was actually really handy was the fact that the Highlands is so big in in Scotland because cause that would have been been so there, there seemed to be lots of different things about counties as well so I thought I'm just going to get a map and this is going to be where it's coming from so because we could have gone on for debating about different counties and former counties and but uh, um it's, uh, lots of places I went were really I went to Barry Barry Island. Do you know Fred West's ashes are there? No, you're kidding me. Yeah, no, seriously. That's um, I, I, I everywhere I went ended up being weird, I and mean, well, I didn't go there because it was weird. I just because um, I started to write a diary after I'd shot it for caught by, the Caught by the River website, and God, I went went somewhere in in Scotland, and they burnt more witches there. Than the whole than anybody else had done in the whole of Europe, and it was kind of like you know, the number one witch burning destination, and all these slightly odd, odd play. Uh, you know, Stonehaven I went where they invented the deep deep fried Mars bar, 
on the ballpoint pen or something. <laughs> that, there was kind of lo lots of really weird, weird things that you found out. But then you realise the whole country's weird, which is brilliant at voters, you know. Have you, be, have you been tempted to come back and shoot a lot of stuff in uh, where your family is from? Have you been tempted to come back to my steak and... Yes, yes, I have. Um, in a, it's been in my mind for a number of years and I haven't quite got to grips. I've, I've made a few things where I was going to sort of start photographing lots of Welsh musicians where, and places where they'd been and, and it, kind of, it sort of started off okay and it kind of, it's, it's, not, it's not quite there yet. It'll come. I'm, I'm kind of, um, I, I, I've kind of learned now not to force these things. The idea will come. Yeah. And it's funny how um, uh, ideas also come from something you've worked on in the past and you kind of, it's that remembering thing again going on, isn't it? And uh, you know at the time it wouldn't be right to do that sort of work, you know? Or... Quite a lot of stuff is half-remembered and I like that thing of half-remembering things because... It kind of gives everything a little bit of a fuzzy edge and it's not quite as defined and there's plenty of room for the project to sort of grow and move. Yeah. Uh, on Beachy Head, uh, a classic example of what you what you are interested in. I mean, uh, again, uh, lots of poignant stuff in that. And the whole landscape and the mistiness of it all. And uh... It's really multifaceted place. It's really complicated place. I like photographing things that even though I photograph them in black and white sometimes, are not black and white. <laughs> you know, there's, there's um, with Beachy Head, it's kind of, it's the most beautiful place you've ever been to, but it's the third most popular suicide destination in the world. But it's incredibly beautiful, it's lovely, and there's loads of wildlife there, and some days you'd go, I photographed it over, I said I was going to do a year there, but because of Southern Rail Strike, I gave myself an extra two months because cause, cause it, it became really difficult to get down there. So I just would go and visit it whenever I had time. And it was first time I kind of went went there. It's kind of I got the I was always on the first train out of London, so it was you know, six o'clock, five something in the morning. Um, and I I would get there and I would get a cab up to Beachy Head. And first time I was there, the cab driver kind of, you notice they check you out in the rear view mirror. And apparently there's some code that they can type in to the, onto their radio thing. Because this, this, this happens a lot. And it's, it's kind of, in some ways it's quite reassuring that people are having this training. There. And there's, there's a chaplaincy that patrol the, the head, the head just looking out for people and checking that people are all right. And they do, Regardless what you think about religion, they do an amazing job. They're fantastic people. Um, the number of lives they've saved is is huge. Um, but you could see you could see that the cab driver was checking you out. And oh, you're going to beat your head then. It's a bit early in the morning. You go. Oh, and you kind of as soon as soon as sort of say, oh yeah, I'm going up there photographer and things like that. And, and oh oh right okay. And they go yeah. And I could t then sort of kind of clocked what was going on and sort of then started showing him cameras and stuff like that so it was kind of then he 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 was fine with it and then 
then I just learned to go in full walking gear and Gore-Tex because because there's so many hikers there like that if you're a hiker even though you're wearing kind of bright orange Gore-Tex you're kind of invisible quite often I would just have a lovely day bird watching and you know some days you'd go and it would be the most peaceful beautiful place in in the world and sometimes you'd go there and it wasn't and um there'd been the 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 more times you went the the easier it became obvious when something was wrong and i think probably the third or fourth time i was just walking walking down the cliff and i found somebody's bag that had just been left there that was full of empty vodka bottles and a pile of their clothes and i was kind of went back and told the coast the coast guard and the chaplain see you there so i went back and reported that straight away and it, it turned out that somebody had gone over the cliff um it was kind of that point you sort of realise now this is an important thing to do and it's important that people talk about this stuff because it's difficult. Um, I mean, we, we, we now have sort of, we, I think it was the other day, we had some Suicide Awareness Day, which is good. And just all these things, people need to talk about this stuff. And, and you know, it's it, the, the, people, the people that worked on the, um, the chaplaincy, the patrol eclipse, you know, they they stop, they save people's lives, which is incredible. And you, and you kind of realise this stuff should be documented in some way because it's important, this important stuff. But not, not you know, not in a, any way where, just do it honestly. Don't, you, you know, nothing need, needs to be just photographed honestly what's going on there because it's, it's kind of important. Um, and... And you'd find you'd, you, you, it was almost like forensic sort of levels of detail. You'd, you'd find yourself, you'd be there and you'd sort of be walking along and then you'd sort of see like a desire line where somebody'd walked, walked up to the edge of the cliff. And you were kind of, well, that could be they've just gone to the edge of the cliff to have a look. But there's all these things that in Beachy Head have a very different context. Train tickets, train, t I found, I found a return portion of a train ticket that hadn't been used, you know. And quite often I found cigarette packets where, you know, there'd been two or three cigarettes smoked just just on the edge. And you can't, somebody could have dropped it, but in the context of the place. Yeah, and it's the crosses as well, isn't it? I mean, I mean and we've become, and, we've become uh, um, and if you go up the Ronda, for example, uh, you will see lots of... Uh, uh, crosses and flowers being left on barbed wire and stuff and tied to lampposts and things. And uh, I did a, a, a lot of work on it. Uh, there's one particular one near Tonopandi which has uh, become a huge shrine and it's uh, everything on it is blue. Uh, it's astonishing and there's this uh, crystal angel that's been taped to a tree, you know, with, uh, gaffer, with gaffer tape. Um, uh, photo photographed that quite a lot and it would be added to it would be something you would need to return to and see what's been added to it um, obviously the guy and there's a picture of the guy there as well um, and those faded photographs you know that have sort of and you see them on um, Menai Bridge is another place where you get lots of flowers tied to uh, um, uh, to the railings there and, uh, and faded photographs of people
we need to talk about these issues more as a society and and sometimes having photographs of things like that can make it easier for people to talk about them and then they can talk talk about their situation i i, I had you know quite a few people write to me about Vichy head stuff about they're saying i was there when i was a difficult part of my life it's kind of it's really interesting to see this and i'm very glad that i'm still here okay you know that, that that's kind of you know and it's sort of important to have that sort of thing but, but it is it's and i mean there's, there's lots of really odd re reporting restrictions around beachy head i had to do some inter interview um on the radio about it and we couldn't use the word suicide we couldn't use the word death couldn't use the word dark we kind of ended up having to do this sort of ridiculous dance around the subject which kind of you know it it felt like we should be able to talk about these things like that obviously people are worried about I, and I think I think it does, you know, sort of news news reports tend to be quite sensational. You know, the it's, it's kind of interesting to, to look at the because when I was doing the research on this, you 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 find you find the local papers are a lot more sensitive than the nationals. Nationals, it's death plunge, um, and there's this kind of odd language around suicide. Um, and, but the local papers, because they have to deal with this more, report it far more sensitively. Have you completed that project now, uh, Brian? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was um, we did a book with um, Ian Sargent's um, Another Place Press, um, which was quite nice. And um, we're going to do a little exhibition of this coming soon. Once, hopefully, that's going to be in November but all the details of that have to be sorted out but but that will be on Twitter and etc and things so have you got any other projects that are sort of bubbling beneath the surface that you're thinking about at the moment I did this weird, weird, weird thing which was again about um, I was watching I was watching TV with my wife and the American version of War of the Worlds came on with um and it was with Tom Cruise and it was set in New York and you know lots of things were blowing up and it was very exciting and Tom Cruise was running around being Tom Cruisey and I halfway through it I was thinking I'm sure this is actually set in Woking and my dad bought me a copy of the book so uh, you know when I was a kid so I, I spent the rest of the time when the film was on, looking for this book, it is set in Woking. This is this is kind of this. Is, it's so I. The fun the fun thing was it's obviously based on H. G. Wells hating where he lived, and hate and hate and hating the commute into London and hating all the places that the train stopped, and he he obviously hated golf because, and. He he basically found all these places that wrote wrote them in and had Martians blow them up or destroy them in some way, and the good thing because he was very specific about it, this you could go and track these places down that were destroyed by Martians, so I kind of wandered around the sort of southwest of that, and 
it was kind of you know these are the most boring it was quite funny to have this boring very boring golf course where in his book this this is where the martians use their heat ray to to destroy a battalion of soldiers on this this spot so I kind of like the idea. This this is also when Trump was here, so we were kind of getting fa- the first thing of fake news coming in. So I kind of like the fake news aspect of almost doing this sort of. There was a lot. There's a lot of very popular landscape of conflict type series of photographs you, that people are photographing battlefields. So I like the idea of being able to combine that with fake news, and photograph these places that did exist. But they had been laid to waste by the Martian invaders, and um, you know, and there was kind of like places like Shoebury Ness and things where the where the, which is where the the cover of the the famous Jeff Lynne War of the Worlds album, which everybody's parents had in the nineteen seventies. I, I found found the location where he's where he said that actually happened and photographed that. So yeah, it's quite a boring seascape, but but with but with the. Um, the captions are all this at this spot, you know. This this is where the third cylinder of the Martian invasion landed. It's like what, what, it's like Bushy Park or something like that. It's, it's a, or it's you know more like it's some sort of really commuters but based bit of London. That 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 kind of amused me to do do that. So I'll finish that. Um, and I'm I'm uh, what am I doing? I'm doing a book of. Um, Musician, musician portraits of the writer called Joe Muggs, and the idea of that is it's it's mainly Joe's interviews with them. But we had we had the idea. This this shows how how late this book is. Um, it was going to be the start of punk, and punk musicians were often would do gigs with reggae musicians as well because they both found it really difficult to get to. To get gigs, and there weren't any punk records out, so you'd have a, the Sex Pistols would play, and the DJ obviously had no punk records to play, so they, they'd get reggae guys in and they would play reggae tunes. Um, so there was this kind of overlap, and it was the 40th anniversary of punk, and everybody was kind of solid, yay, punk. Um, but it was kind of like punk music didn't really massively develop. But if you follow the reggae guys that did stuff, with you know the Dennis Bavals and things like that, you start you kind of get this other strand of British music which comes more through the sort of dancehall and the reggae and you know you would end up doing grime and dubstep and all these sort of different genres, but they they come from this place. So we've we've been photographing lots of different musicians. I think the oldest one's seventy eight, the youngest one's about fifteen, I think. So this huge breadth of, um, of, and it's really generational as well. So it's, um, this book is going to be published um, hopefully next year. I, I think the, the, pub, the publisher's just done a deal with um, MIT in Boston, so I think it's going to get quite a lot of distribution and things like that. So, so it's going to come out through an academic publisher. Um so that's that's kind of interesting, but that's kind of t- taken so long to do. Um, I'm also photographing landscapes, and I'm going to do one tomorrow actually, um, where artists got inspiration from. So so, and it's kind of quite vague in terms of it. lots of things I do start and don't finish, don't see the light of day, 
these things yeah this might not i don't know it's kind of there's a point where you you kind of decide some things are more successful than others but it'll lead to something else so i've kind of done things like cookham where um stanley spencer grew up um i've done the whittingham uh, whittington clumps where paul nash did lots of painting and things I've since discovered he actually very rarely went up there he used to paint them through binoculars he would look, look, look at them from the binoculars of his house and paint them, apparently, which is kind of fa fascinating. Um, so the British artist, John Piper, I've, yeah, I've got, kind of did some shots. He, he did some paintings around Eastbourne, so I tried to work out where they were. Yeah, the possibilities are endless. It's just having enough time.